Studios of WORQ in Wisconsin. This is the Stand Up for the Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up for the Truth. Friday, October 20, a brand new podcast, fresh new podcast today. I'm Crash Connell. Mary Danielson is here, and one of our favorite guests. Mm. We say that every day, but this one is uh, last time he was on, we had quite the audience. So looking forward to today's podcast, Mary Danielson. Yes, another day in paradise, as I like to say. We are still here. Uh, the church is still on earth, so God has something for us to do, so we best be about it. My guest today is Pete Garcia, um, watcher, Bible student, prophecy student. Uh, with his background, I'm really looking forward to his thoughts on Israel and so much more. So I'm going to read our scripture and then pray, and we're going to get right to it. And today's scripture is a replay. Yes, it's from last week. You're not imagining that, but it fits so well uh, with this opening article from Pete. So Titus 2, 11 to 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Great verses. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we do desire to be lovers of truth above all, Help us to lean not on our own understanding in these dark, dark times, but rather we pray that the church at large would desire a true understanding of the times based on the promises, Lord, in your word. Such precious promises they are. We thank you that there is no shadow of turning in you, and your word is forever settled in heaven. We lift up those struggling today uh, with health issues, um, those who have lost loved ones, those who may be even fearful about the future Lord, that you would come alongside them, heal them, comfort them as only you can, strengthen their faith. I pray for our guest Pete and his loved ones uh, for good health, uh, for protection, that you'd bless his labors for the kingdom. Give him a lot of open doors, Lord, to encourage and exhort believers in these times. In Jesus' name, amen. Pete Garcia is a retired military combat veteran and aviator, writer, researcher, speaker, um, Bible prophecy teacher, apologetics teacher with a BA in international relations, and a graduate of the U.S. Army's prestigious command and and general staff college. He also was a medevac pilot of 24 years. He wrote for Jack Kinsella's Omega Letter from 2011 to 2018, and to date he's written over 600 articles that are carried on uh, many websites and platforms. And he has also, in his spare time, uh, contributed uh, written chapters to three. Uh, of Terry James published books, and he co-wrote two nonfiction books uh, called The Disappearing and The New World Order, and he's published three of his own Christian fiction novels. Wow, Revelation, Rev, it's Revelation, of course, Rev310.net, so Rev310.net, which says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Pete, thank you for your service, and welcome back to Stand Up for the Truth. Well, thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. 
Yes, uh, there's so much we can talk about. I just want to ask you just a, a brief question. Uh, personally speaking, people can get to know you a little bit better. Uh, did you did you come to Christ during your service years, or, or were you raised in a Christian home? Just a little bit about that. Uh, no, I got well. I was raised in a, uh, a you know a Christian home. Uh, my dad was from Mexico, and uh, he uh, actually became a Baptist. You know, most of hmm. Mexico, I think, or Mexicans are you know, about ninety percent Catholic. Yeah. Um, so he didn't grow up in a religious home, but uh, he came to the United States back in the 1960s and then met my mom. And then eventually, uh, I don't know the whole backstory when they started going to church and everything, but I was raised up, you know, when I was growing up in a church home. So um, I got saved at the age of six, uh, pretty much uh, was in church all the way through high school. Um, but, you know, I, I was like most teenagers. I didn't really think about it. It wasn't, you know, it was just something I did. It wasn't something mm-hmm. that I, I was or, you know, that I really uh, understood all that well. And uh, I drifted for about 15 years after that. And then it was when I was back, when I was in the service uh, as an officer, 2007, that I had my kind of come to Jesus moment. Mm. And uh, from that from that point on, it's been, uh, you know, game on. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. Well, the Lord's had his hand on your life. Um, and I think a lot of us feel that way, even when we were quite young, if we think about it hard enough. Um, these verses in Titus, Pete, you know, soberly, righteously, godly. I mean, these are descriptions of what our lives need to look like in these days. And this article, The Lonely Road to the Blessed Hope, I really enjoyed that. And it opens with Revelation 3.8. So we just we just back up a couple verses, and that says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And the article is very straightforward. I wanted to ask you, uh, what was, was there something particular, a thing or a thought or an event that caused you to write this article? This, your general impression on what, what, you know, why you wrote the article? Well, I think, uh, you know, pretty much when I came back from, so, I had my come to Jesus moment in 2007. Uh, I, that was in September, and by December I was married. And about a week after I got married, I was deployed to Afghanistan. Wow! And um, I was there for the year, and that was that year of kind of uh, spiritual growth for me. I I don't even know how I found the book. I somehow I found Chuck Missler's book, uh, "Learn the Bible in 24 Hours," hmm. and and it it kind of uh, I mean it did two things. It lit a fire under me first of all, but then secondly it it, uh, it helped me connect the Bible in a way together. Like, I never understood how it all connected together. I never really understood the supernatural aspects to it. Um, and so, from that point on, I began to really, uh, you know, dive into the Bible once I understood kind of, um, you know, how Genesis connects with Revelation, Ruth connects with Revelation 5. I mean, there's so many correlations and things between the Old and New Testament that just um, you know, when you think about how the Bible was written over 1,600 years, 40 different authors, you know, these guys, most of them didn't know each other, lived, you know, different continents, different mm-hmm. centuries, and yet they had the same coherent message um, that, that foretold of, uh, you know, the scarlet thread of redemption that runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And um, for me, it was a, um, it became an addiction, and I, I basically spent the next three years um you know, with with my Bible in hand, everywhere I went, I, I prayed to God for two things. I asked for a hunger for His Word, 
and I prayed for wisdom to understand what I was reading because, like I said, I, I grew up in church, but I didn't. I I knew all the stories. I knew like you know Jonah and Daniel and the lion's den and all those things, but like I couldn't really. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really know where they were. I didn't understand anything. I couldn't remember anything. I was a terrible student. <laughs> um, so I, something flipped. You know, a light bulb went off in my head when I prayed that because God allowed me to a understand what I was reading and, and b remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for the next three years, I was just, it was just like I was growing, I was growing and growing. And then, um, 2011 came and, and that's when I got introduced to Jack Kinsella's Omega letter. And he, mm-hmm. um, after a, a while I was, you know, contributing things into the forum and, and I got invited to write and I just told him, I said, you know, I've never written anything before. I've never had anything published. I don't, the last writing I did was in college, you know, for school papers and things like that. And um, he said, well, you know, let's give it a shot and see if you like it. And and so from 2011 to 2018, I wrote for the Omega Letter, and that's all I did. I, I wrote an article a week, every week, and uh, I, I never really cor- I never talked to anybody. Um, most of the people I knew uh, didn't like, didn't, you know, weren't interested in prophecy. They weren't interested in anything. So after a while, you know, you get to feel kind of isolated. And um, my... Uh, family that I married into, the the church, they, you know, their denomination that they were, uh, you know, five generations deep into were, is Church Christ, and so they don't ever talk about prophecy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a few, there were a few people here and there that I, that I met that, that were interested in the topic or would listen or whatever, and, um, but for the most part, I was pretty much alone, and I never did interviews. I never, you know, I didn't do anything. I was just writing, you know, on an island, if, you know, as it were. And um, even when uh, we closed the Omega letter down and I started my own website, um, I spent the next two years really not connected with anybody. Um, I went to a couple of prophecy conferences and, you know, nobody knew who I was. And um, it wasn't until I think I did an interview with Jen Markell in 2021 that, you know, I even connected with, you know, a broader audience. and. Um, from there, I, I think my next interview was with Tom Hughes. And then I realized that there was a whole, uh, group of people on YouTube. I didn't even know that. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, I, I mean, it's obviously gotten a lot better, but there was a good 10 years where I was just like, you know, an army of one, you know, yeah. that's what at least it felt like. So. Right. Right. And with prophecy not being part of the church's worldview anymore, we talk about biblical worldviews, but oftentimes I think we're thinking, politics. We're thinking about abortion and how does God feel about this and how does God feel about that? Well, what about prophecy? I believe that a Christian worldview has got to have primarily the things that God deems important. And right now it's prophecy. And in your in your article, you talk about watchmen and you talk about uh, um, th- certain things about the watchmen that, that this generation you know, will not heed the warning. They, they have eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, and they're cynical. Um, what do you say about just being a watchman in general and that particular kind of brick wall that we often face? Um, how, how do you continue to encourage watchmen to, to keep going and just put one foot in front of the other when no one wants to talk about these things? Well, I, I, in the article, I, I mentioned um, this thing about being ruined by the love of Christ. And, mm. and once you... Once you uh, understand God's prophetic plan for the world and for the ages to come, it, it everything else seems minuscule in comparison. Everything mm-hmm. else seems so temporary and so shallow. And I'm not to say that mm-hmm. 
your job is not important or, you know, current events. Like I'm involved in a lot of different things. I've done jail ministry. I've done, I worked with school boards um, here over issues. So I'm not saying that we disconnect from the things with the here and now, right. but, but, you know, when I'm sitting in a meeting with the, with the military or, or whatever, uh, when I was still in, um, and we're planning a 10-year, 20-year plan. I'm just thinking in the back of my mind, it was always there like, man, these guys have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if even if the Lord doesn't come back in the next 10 years, which I believe he will, yeah. uh, the United States in, is in such a, a uh, just a terrible state that we, we are, we, we, you know, we're not going to, we have, most people live under this uh, umbrella of this normalcy bias. They just think that the world tomorrow is going to be the same as it was today, as it was yesterday. And uh, obviously things like 9-11 happened. You know, if you think back to September 10th, 2001, the world was one way. And I'm sure people on September 10th were making plans for the rest of the week. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to fly here. We're going to go on vacation. I'm going to retire. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And and then the next day your world is turned on its head. Mm. And you're you're sitting there trying to make sense of the craziness. it's, It's so beyond... Um, your ability to um, uh, compartmentalize or, mm-hmm. or put into kind of perspective, uh, and and you're sitting there wondering what is going on, and that question, that moment right there of confusion. Uh, if you understand Bible prophecy, there is a clarity that God and there's a peace that God gives you mm-hmm. in those moments that that. Um, the world cannot cannot offer it. it the world because the world doesn't know. The world doesn't can't see into the future. Only the Bible uh, can see into the future and describes things that are going to happen because God is omniscient. He exists in past, present, and future all at the same time. So there is, you know, the future. He he declares the future from the beginning. He says that in Isaiah forty six mm-hmm. nine and ten. So mm-hmm. um, I think there's a peace that comes on uh, comes over those that begin to understand. Bible prophecy uh, properly, and and also that that desire to share that with other people because you know time is running out, and so for most watchmen that I know tend to be very evangelistic because they know that we don't have a lot of time left. So they're they are not only talking about prophecy, but they're tying that in back in with the gospel and making sure that people get right with the Lord right now today, and don't put this thing off because we don't know how much longer we have, and. That's true on an individual level, and it's also true for the world at large, you know. Um, so I, I just say that for me, it, it's it's changed me forever. And I, I won't, I don't, you know, I've always asked God to, to um, keep using me, keep using me and, and open the doors that he wants to open. And he did that in, in spades, yeah. um, you know, back in 21. And, you know, I just keep asking God, hey, keep using me. I, I, I want to be found faithful until the day you come back for us. Yeah, yeah. And don't, yeah. I don't want to get distracted. And I know people, a lot of my friends have, have dropped out of the ministries for various reasons. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's health reasons. Sometimes it's jobs. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes they just get burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I don't ever want to be in that situation. And thank God, you know, I've been doing this now for 12, 13 years almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, he's sustained me. And, um, and I, that's the beauty and the wonder of, of prophecy, because mm-hmm. we don't know everything. We're always limited to the information available at us at that time. Um, we have the Bible, and the Bible gives us this outline of things that are going to happen, but we don't know exactly how things are going to play out. Right. 
And what I knew in 2010 versus what I know now is um, the, the outline, the projection, everything is still changed, or still the same. But what changes is the how things actually are fulfilled. And so uh, nobody, none of the prophecy teachers that I know and follow were talking about COVID, you know, prior to COVID. Right. Um, you know, right. nobody foresaw the level of how that would shut the entire world down. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we all kind of anticipate that things like pandemics are going to happen, but I don't think anybody really foresaw how, how that was going to actually, what that was going to look like. And so God continues to amaze and, um, keep us on our toes, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amen. I, as I was reading this article yesterday, I was thinking about a couple of verses in Amos, Amos chapter three. And one of them is, uh, three, three, can two walk together lest they be agreed? Well, you know, in the church, that that really presupposes a lonely road, which is a narrow road. But ecumenism, you know, rapture denial, God's promises to Israel, false doctrine in the church, we cannot walk with that. So that makes it a lonelier road. But then in verse 8, I think this was so interesting. Uh, Amos 3.8 says, A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So once you know, Amos is saying, don't blame me, I'm just the messenger, and (laughs) mankind naturally will fear when a lion roars, and that's how natural it is for a prophet to prophesy, or for the church, for those who who love prophecy, to tell people what God has said. And so we have to be warning people. I mean, don't you, you know, don't you feel totally compelled to do that, even if no one listens? And you mentioned in the article that, um, you know, people just, uh, they kind of turn back to their phones and, and, uh, just keep going with what they're, they're going with. And like you said, life will continue, but, um, you know, not to the, not to the point where we can ignore what is going on. And we're running out of normalcy, aren't, uh, don't you think that that is, true is that something that you're seeing yeah i think that that the the closer we draw to the end the more god is using these things i mean signs aren't happening just to to uh wow us i mean he's right. giving these signs as a wake-up call for the world to heed um that the, the the present reality is about to come to its end mm-hmm. to its inescapable conclusion mm-hmm. um, which was obviously foretold in scripture Um, so he's giving us these signs and for those people to understand, Hey, you know, God's prophetic clock is starting to wind down here and things are coming into focus just as much as, as, uh, Daniel's 70th week, when that began under Nehemiah, there was going to be so many years until the Messiah was cut off. And if you just, you know, Daniel 70 weeks is 490 years. If that began in around 445 BC, and Christ's crucifixion was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 33 A.D., um, you know, you can do the math, and, and, and most, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all expected a Messiah to come, but none of them really believed that he was actually going to come or in the manner that he came. And, and certainly when the wise men showed up in, in Bethlehem, these, uh, what I think were probably Parthians, uh, this entourage shows up to Bethlehem, and they show up to King Herod, and they're saying, hey, we've seen the star from the east. We're coming to worship the one-born king of the Jews. And Herod turns to the Pharisees and is like, well, what are they talking about? <laughs> you know, <laughs> And the Pharisees are like, Wah! they kind of just kind of downplayed uh, Micah, uh, the the prophecy in Micah 5, like it was nothing, like, mm-hmm. oh, man, it's this old prophecy. Nobody really believes that. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the incredulous thing about that whole scenario is that they didn't even walk, you know, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's not very far. They didn't even walk the the few miles 
with them to see, is this really true? Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. when Jesus is uh, presented at the temple, there was only a couple of people that immediately recognized who he was. And, you know, the Anna, the prophetess, and uh, Simeon. And so uh, the the general public at large were not watching and waiting for this Messiah to come, even though it was in their Bible. You know, the Old Testament was their Bible at the time. Even though it was there, it was all written, it was laid out, it would take a little bit of uh, student um, scholarship to, to work through the maybe some of the math on there, but they could have had a general idea when the, when the Lord, their Messiah was coming, mm-hmm. but nobody, nobody in that generation was ready. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in exact, that exact same time frame right now mm-hmm. where all of these signs have converged over the last uh, 75 years, and it's, it's only getting worse. It's only increasing in intensity and frequency. And, and again, most of the church is asleep at the wheel. Yeah. Preachers don't want to talk about it because it's mm-hmm. too controversial. It's too hard to understand. Mm. I, I mean, I kind of just look at them as the same as the religious leaders in Jesus' day, when none of them really believed that Jesus, that the Messiah was going to come. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of correlation between the willful, willful ignorance then as there is today in most church pulpits in America. Yeah, willful ignorance is right. And I'm looking, in my notes here, I'm looking at that phrase, as soon as you said it, you know, be not ignorant of Satan's devices, Second Corinthians, of them which are asleep. Don't be ignorant about the rapture, First Thessalonians 4.13. Uh, don't be ignorant about blindness having happened in part to Israel. And then another one, let no man deceive you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and deceive many. So, you know, that willful ignorance, unfortunately, is a byproduct of pulpits not teaching uh, prophecy, let alone even the scriptures. You say there's something more troubling um, than even that those, to those who only profess Christ with their mouths but not their hearts. Perhaps the division between professing and believing is what really causes them to reject the watchman's warning. Talk to us a little bit about that, the, the professing church, the believing church. What does that mean? Well, I think, you know, Christendom is, a you know, just as it, Jesus mentions in the parable of the, uh, the mustard tree, or the mustard seed, mm-hmm. you know, that this, this small tree somehow grows into this enormous uh, tree bigger than all the rest of them, and it has all these birds that come in and take nests. And in the context of those parables in Matthew 13, the birds are seen as a negative thing because in the first parable, the birds are the ones that come and eat the seeds off the pathway um, you know, the seed being the gospel that takes root in, in the believer, and these birds come and eat them. So in the context of that, these birds are negative, but they're, they're, re- they're roosting in these trees, uh, you know, it's, as these unclean things. And so, and that's, Jesus is foretelling what the church age was going to look like over the next 2,000 years. And so we saw Christianity spread from Jerusalem all throughout the Roman Empire and beyond, into, down into Egypt, into India, into China. And for the next, you know, two millennia, Christianity has gone into every country, has gone, it's been, you know, the Bible's been translated in, I don't even know how many languages now, but mm-hmm. most languages, I think they're working through all the different dialects now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the gospel has been on the, uh, you know, the Antarctic. <laughs> the, they took the Bible with them. Uh, whoever the first expedition was that the British sent to, to cross the Antarctic, they took the Bible with them all the way across it. Mm. Um, and so, the gospel has gone out, it's spread out. But there are so many different groups within, and and many uh, uh, we would consider orthodox, and many we would consider heterodox that that don't 
um, that aren't sticking to what the Bible teaches. They're beginning to stray off on these different paths. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think um, what we're seeing the the um, within most of Christendom today is this general um, preoccupation with the world and with the with the issues. And so Satan is a master of distraction. And he knows that he couldn't wipe the church out in the first few centuries that it began. He tried under these different Roman emperors, had tried to to crush it. And there was 10 different periods, 10 different emperors that really came down hard on the church trying to wipe it out. And it just caused the church to spread even more. Well, if he wasn't going to be able to destroy it, he was was dang sure going to try and corrupt it, which he's been far more successful in doing. Uh, when Constantine legalized Christianity in the third century, mm-hmm. you think about all the different pagan temples and priests and all these uh, guys that, that served and worshiped different gods. When they began to convert over to Christianity, whether they really did or not, mm-hmm. um, uh, I mean, that's beside the point. The point is they, bought, they brought with them baggage, mm-hmm. and this baggage being pagan um, rituals and, and teachings and, and things like that, that crept into the church. And so instead of the world... Uh, going out into the church, the church, uh, excuse me, instead of the church going out into the world, the world came into the church. And so that's been the kind of the way it's been for the last 2,000 years. There's mm-hmm. wheat and tares, mm-hmm. and it's hard to tell who's who until they begin to grow up. And then you see the the obvious distinct was, uh, distinctives between the two different plants. There's also these distinctives between these two different types of Christians, whether they just profess with their mouth or they mm-hmm. actually believe um, you know, somebody can walk the aisle and make a profession, say all the right words, but if they don't truly believe it, then, mm-hmm. then there's no regeneration there. Right, and we can't um, tell. But, we can't tell by looking at people whether they are or not. Um, there's yeah. a lot of churches out there that have just horrible doctrines, so that gives you an idea of, of the health of that body. But we don't know, so the wheat and the tares is uh, is definitely a, a ap- applicable parable at this point. We only have four minutes left in this segment, Pete, and um, the rapture itself, you know, um, it just seems like when I first started to look over the Internet, uh, well, this was quite a while ago, but I could find a lot of scholarly articles defending a preacher rapture. Now, I pretty much only find scoffing and patronizing. Um, they'll say it's not scriptural or it's really a long, a long ways off. But imminency, I believe imminency is the key to that, and, and they don't seem to be able to answer me on uh, the – it could happen at any time – um, is that the, the def- is that the number one defense that you would you what do you tell people when they when they say no it could be post it could be whatever um, well you, you got two different groups you got people that don't believe it's going to happen at all okay. which which will largely be like the amillennialist or the post millennialist uh, and preterist um, and for them uh, they don't they don't see a rapture at all they see a general resurrection at the very end of time and okay. so. For them, I would just point out the differences or the distinctives between the second coming and what the rapture, you know, the passages that, that speak of the rapture and mm-hmm. how they're so different. And the even the events surrounding them are very different. Um, but with those that, that hold to a rapture, they just don't hold to a pre-trib rapture like pre-wrath, mid-trib, post-trib. Uh, or I guess there's some that believe that there's a lot of different raptures that happen. I don't know the name of it, but... Um, <clears throat> For them, you know, uh, the idea of eminence that, that Paul speaks of isn't my number one go-to defense, but um, certainly uh, the passage that speak about, like, you know, for instance, you know, just paraphrasing First Thessalonians 4, when he, Paul concludes with that, he says, you know, now comfort each other with these words. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just described the rapture. Well, if you go back to what Jesus said about it, 
this tribulation time is going to be the worst t- period of time in, in all of human history. It, it will be worse than the, the days of Noah. It will be the worst. Yeah. It will be the hardest. And, and how is Paul comforting them <laughs> if they have to go through it, you know, any right. degree of it? Right. Um, so for me, that, that speaks to the idea that the only way that the rapture can be at a day and hour nobody knows is if it happens before, because during the 70th week itself, it is the most chronicle seven-year period of time in all mm-hmm. of the Bible. It's mm-hmm. broken up into, uh, you know, the, the length of time, which is seven years. These are 360-day years, 30-day months. It's broken up into two periods, in two halves. It's uh, bifurcated in the middle by the abomination that causes desolation. And then on top of that, you have all the judgments that are going to happen uh, chronologically. Um, so you have the seals, trumpets, and then the bull judgments. So there's no other way to, I mean, if you know, if, you, if you're if you at the halfway point, you know you only have three and a half years right. left. I mean, you know that without a shadow of a doubt. Right. So there's the idea that no man can know the day or the hour. That's thrown out the window yeah. because you you absolutely can know yeah, because well, the Bible says it. So, Well, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, that's just excellent. Um, also, I was thinking about Dominion Theology, Pete, because the church believes, a lot of the church believes in Dominion Theology that Jesus can only come back once we've cleaned up all our messes and gotten everything right. Well, that's delusional because mankind is making no effort whatsoever to turn the corner on wickedness or the desire for power. Uh, so we'll we'll let that one go. But anyway, my name is Mary Danielson. You're listening to Stand Up for the Truth. Our guest is Pete Garcia, and uh, we covered a lot in the first part. And we are going to switch gears a bit and talk about Israel and Pete's article called Equivocation. So we're going to take a two-minute break. Um, join me for the second half with more of Pete Garcia. Feedback, questions, and topic suggestions are always appreciated. Email us at comments at standupforthetruth.com. Rev310.net. Rev310.net is the website. Just a couple of verses really struck me in the last day or so. And because we're talking about Watchmen, um, I just want to read two verses here before we move on to Israel. Um, Isaiah 21, 11 to 12. And I get a question, I get the question a lot. When's the rapture? And of course it's rhetorical, but. And this verse says, uh, Isaiah 21, 11 and 12 says, Watchmen, what is left of the night? Watchmen, what is left of the night? The watchman replies, morning is coming, but also the night. A very dark night. So morning for the believer and the darkest, darkest night for the unbeliever. And then the other one, um, Psalm 130, verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. And we'll see there's repetition in each of those verses. And I just love that because uh, um, maybe we should listen to that. If it, they say it twice, listen twice. So anyway, welcome back. Um, Pete, welcome back to the second half of the podcast. And we want to talk about um, the world is on fire, Pete, and you know that. And someone is throwing gas on it. The UN said on October 18th that, quote, the world is on the brink of a deep and dangerous abyss. Well, they're even noticing, uh, and that was UN coordinator for Mideast Peace. Um, you know, and so people are saying, well, you're the UN, so why are you doing nothing as usual? Um, but before we get to your next article, Pete, which is called Equivocation, uh, what are you hearing today? I mean, specifically, maybe in the last 24 hours about events in Israel, it's, it's running hot and cold over there. It seems to threaten to expand, and then it contracts. And you were at a conference um, the weekend when this all kind of broke out. So all of a sudden you have something else to think about at that conference. 
and there seems to be a delay in the ground invasion. Uh, is someone holding that back? Pete, I have so many questions for you. So what's new in the last day or so? Is there anything significant? Well, I think just in the last day or so, the, the Israelis, I think, have been able to successfully um, flip the narrative on Hamas because, you know, the, the, the rocket that was launched that supposedly hit a hospital and killed 500 people and then it killed 1,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hamas was blaming Israel on it. Israel's like, oh, we got video footage. It, it was a failed launch by Islamic Jihad. You can see the, the, the rocket taking off and then it, it does like this U-turn and <laughs> just comes mm-hmm. right back down. And hits that parking lot. And so I think the new estimates are that there's somewhere between 20 and 50 people died mm. uh, in, in conjunction with that particular failed rocket launch. But, um, you know, uh, Israel's been, you know, they're not having to just fight a physical war. They're also having to fight this propaganda war and to fight this narrative war that, that Hamas and the Palestinians writ large have been waging against them since uh, Yasser Arafat in the mm. 1960s. So mm-hmm. that's the, that's, that's the big takeaway in the last couple of days. But we're also starting to hear about some of the U.S. concessions that that we p- imposed upon them for providing uh, military aid, um, you know, equipment, uh, uh, support in the region with their carrier groups. So, it, you know, I wrote this article equivocation back on uh, uh, four days ago. So this is I wrote this even before I knew all of this stuff that was coming mm. out with what what you know Anthony Blinken and and Biden were really asking for behind the scenes. So, um, but I always knew that when the U.S. gets involved in something, um, there's always strings attached. Yeah. And um, that's kind of how I kind of uh, presented this article is, you know, I'm thankful that the Biden administration is providing support, much in the same way that the thankful that the Nixon administration provided support during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Mm-hmm. However, I, I don't necessarily trust their motives because they have not, you know, the, the, at least the Democrat Party, and I would say rhinos, the establishment, <laughs> you know, D.C. Beltway types, mm-hmm. um, 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 those type of folks, um, neocons and so forth, mm-hmm. or um, they've not always had Israel in their, in their best interest. They've always done these um, political maneuvering or machinations, if you will. Um, that put Israel over uh, a barrel in a lot of different ways. And so I, I put a map in the, in the article, and you can see all of the Muslim world there, and you can barely see Israel. And, and what the world is telling everybody, that if we just divide that little sliver of land up just a little more, you'll get all this peace that you wanted. And really, it's to put these footholds inside of Israel's you know, territory mm-hmm. in order to uh, do exactly what Hamas has done and eventually drive the Jews into the sea, which is what Iran's been wanting to do uh, since at least 1979 and their, um, their uh, Islamic revolution there. So um, it, it's definitely, uh, there is a, a bit of a hold right now in terms of their ground invasion. I don't know if it started this morning, uh, but we've been waiting and, and yeah. waiting and waiting. So uh, it seems like <laughs> Israel understands the complexity of urban warfare, which is incredibly hard. Because um, it's not just fighting street to street. You have buildings, multi-level buildings. You have the subterranean component component uh, to it. Mm-hmm. You have uh, all of the different ways that can be booby-trapped. And, I mean, it, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think Israel is going to take their time, but they will go through and basically clear out um, any semblance of ha- Hamas that's still there. And, you know, what's interesting also that, that I think that's come out in the last couple of days is, 
Egypt's uh, Egypt and Jordan, Jordan's uh, the kingdom of Jordan saying, "Hey, we don't want these guys. <laughs> we don't want them. Uh, uh, we know we've had them before. We know that what they represent because Hamas and Islamic Jihad are intricately connected to the Muslim Brotherhood and with the other terror groups that that operate in uh, Judea and Samaria as well as in uh, Jordan and other places. So." Um, and then also, I think we've seen an escalation in the northern front in the yeah. Golan Heights with Hezbollah, yeah. or at least rockets coming from Lebanon into northern Israel. So I do think this will end up being a multi-front war um, once Israel actually starts the, the the actual ground invasion. I think that what we've seen here over the last weekend with the, the rallies around the world, you know, primarily in western capitals and things, um, I think that's that is uh, only going to escalate once Israel puts boots on the ground inside of Gaza itself. So wow, yeah, you know that whole moral equivalent thing that the Palestinians, quote unquote, I use that term very loosely, are are they need to be freed, you know, from from oppression. They need to have their own state, and so we're somehow supposed to believe that those who have been calling for Israel's total destruction, that's all going to end if they get a state that's oh I don't know run by Iran right next door. To Israel, I mean, I mean, it's just insane. But we have university students who have gone to university of uh, the liberal thinking there, the Democrat thinking there, and they actually believe this. Is there any hope for our our young people at that point, or even the the squad that's in our own government? Which I think both we all thought that was never going to be a good idea. But how can we come against these incredible lies, these uh, moral equivalency lies in the universities? I don't see that ever getting any better. Do you? No, I mean, we live in a postmodern era. Um, you know, we kind of live in these overlapping eras of, 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 you know, or ages of time. Yeah. You know, we're in the fourth industrial revolution, and from a technological and economical standpoint, we're in the age of information. Um, we have been for at least, you know, since the 1980s, where information is incrementally and exponentially being broadcast through so many different mediums now, it's hitting everybody in every different possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much information flowing out of, of every possible, you know, market and media and platform. And so a lot of different narratives are going out everywhere. And I think the vast majority of, uh, you know, Gen X or Gen Z millennials um, are b- constantly bombarded by this news. And eventually, even though they may not have begun one way, they are just so overwhelmed by it right. that it seems like it's true. Um, I, I can't remember which Nazi said it, but he said, um, may- maybe it was Eichmann or somebody, but he said, uh, you know, if you repeat a lie long enough, people are going to believe it. Yes. You know, lie big enough and, and long enough, people are going to start to believe it, no matter yes. how incredible or how ridiculous it is. It was Go- Goebbels, Gerb- Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he said that. Wow. So that's, you know, I think that's the problem with this generation, and, and which goes back to the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus was, began describing to his disciples the, the signs of the last days, the number one sign that he lists, I think, four times in there, was deception. Yeah. And if you think about how did Jesus know that deception would be the number one sign, because he lived in a world where if he were just a man and he were just a, a Jewish guy in the back province of the Roman Empire, um, how would he know that deception would be the biggest global challenge in the last days because <laughs> when they had a letter or they had a piece of information that had to get written out on a scroll or, or maybe through a messenger and that messenger had to travel from one place to, you know, you know, by foot, you know, 
or by ship, you know, from, say, Jerusalem back to uh, the, uh, Rome to get a message. And, it, you know, there was, a, you know, in that year in 19, or excuse me, in the year 69 A.D. or 70 A.D., it's called the Year of the Four Emperors. And when, when Caesar uh, Nero died, there was a big power grab for um, the throne. And so Titus, or Vespasian, Titus Vespasian's father, was actually in the process of sieging Jerusalem. Well, they didn't even know that Nero had died. There was a, a couple of months or something that went by, and finally he gets called back to go to Rome to make a, a bid for the seat of Caesar, and he gave his son you know, time to, to take over. General Titus took over the sieging of that. And so there was a big, there was a lull in time, you know, I don't know how long it was, maybe 60 days or so, but it gave people time to get out of there. Christians that knew, understood the last days, mm. or understood the prophecy given in the, all the discourse in Luke's version, at least, understood that this was going to happen and they left. And so when you read through the mm. writings of Josephus, he was talking about, um, you know, that about 11, about a million point one Jews were killed during this time. And somebody was writing about it, too. I can't remember if it was Josephus or not, but it, the, he mentions, like, the the Christians leaving or something. And so mm-hmm. the Christians kind of fled during that time period because they understood what was going to happen. Oh. So, you know, I think these, this generation today is 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 being groomed and, and uh, conditioned and desensitized for the final seven years. I don't see it getting any better. Right. And I don't see the modern churches today doing anything to help that, yeah. uh, you know, to help curb that. Um, and so it is truly a, a remnant of, of believers within the Christian community that are awake and that are talking about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that if the rapture happened tomorrow, uh, the first thing people are going to start looking for is stuff on the rapture. And so I think God has given mm-hmm. us this, this open door in this short period of time mm-hmm. with the technology that we have, like through your program, through mine, through the YouTube, through uh, you know, Rumble and all the different other platforms that are out there, there's people talking about the rapture. So we're going to try and combat that narrative preemptively mm-hmm. so that when it does happen, people will know that it wasn't aliens, it wasn't Gaia, it wasn't some other thing, that it was the rapture of the church. And I think that we see that soul harvest at the beginning of the tribulation. There, There is so many people that come to faith in Christ and are martyred for their faith and are willing to die for the faith that John can't even count them. They're the wow. ones that we see in Revelation 7 wow. under the altar. It's the number he couldn't count. It was beyond his, you know, mm-hmm. understanding of how many people. So I think the rapture in and of itself will be a great, uh, will probably be one of the greatest witnessing tools that will have ever happened in the modern you know, era since the days of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, great dot connecting, Pete. Um, you know, talk about delusion, and there will be strong delusion. People will believe all kinds of lies. And uh, I was talking to JB this weekend. I know you're talking to JB Hickson very soon here. And he said that what we're seeing happening in Israel and what we're seeing is already um, powers and principalities. It's already a war in heaven. It's already begun to be fought there by the time we see it down here. And then there's the war for men's souls. We are the spoils. Men's souls are the spoils between what's going on between uh, the powers of darkness and um, God. Uh, I thought that was very interesting, uh, the way he put that. And speaking of delusion, I want to get back to the hospital thing real quickly because um, I read Jeff Childers every day, Coffee and COVID blog. He's just fantastic. He's brilliant. And uh, he said that, and people can look this up and see if it's true, that, that the hospital there is still standing. The building they showed and the cars, dis- the destruction of the cars, is, is Hamas and manipulating the narrative. And we know they've done that before. 
this is pretty big, and Israel hasn't come out and said that. So I, you know, I, I was hesitating a little bit. But Jeff says that that hospital is still standing, and whether those numbers of people are dead, we don't know either. Have you heard anything like that? Uh, I've just heard that the numbers were greatly inflated um, and that it hit the parking lot, not necessarily the building. And then when you look at the pictures of the damage, it does certainly look like the parking lot. And I don't know which of those buildings around it, but they were all still standing. (laughs) So, um, but, you know, the, the thing about, uh, this this uh, narrative war that that the uh, the Islamists are waging against Israel, they I mean obviously it works to their benefit if the West buys into it. You have the BBC, New York Times, and others that kind of preemptively came out and started blaming Israel. Mm-hmm. But what the real audience that they're trying to get ginned up is is um, other Arabs and uh, Muslims around the world that aren't getting this information that you and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. They don't watch Israel news. They don't. They don't, you know, they, they may only watch Al Jazeera or something, you know, we don't know, but it's to get them ginned up and get them marching towards there to join in their war, uh, to kind of try and overwhelm Israel. And so that's who their, their target audience is. Um, sure, they like to win the narrative war with the West, but mm-hmm. uh, more importantly, they need to get these other Muslim groups around there fired up and ready to, to, to just march off, you know, emotionally charged, mm-hmm. ready to die for their faith. And that's what yeah. their their hope and goal is and all that. Wow. I know that your military service, you probably process things because of that a little differently than we do. Um, and I want to ask you about the hostages. Uh, is ISIS involved in this point? I mean, you served in the Middle East. And also, is there any hope for these hostages? My heart breaks for these people, and I wonder what is going on with them. Um, is there hope for them? Do you think they're still alive? Uh, I think, yeah, I think a lot of them are still alive because they're going to use them as human shields. Okay. But I think the only, and I, this is going to sound completely cold, um, but I think, and I don't want to speak out of, I, I'm just speaking how I, I think would be happening. So from the moment they were taken and from the moment that, that you know, Israel began to the declared war and did all that, I, I believe probably their special forces, Mossad and other groups are probably already working in in there trying to figure out where they are, um, and they've already got people, boots on the ground already in Gaza trying okay. to determine all that. But um, I don't think, I mean, I think as a policy going forward that the government should probably treat them as dead already. Mm. And, I, and I know that doesn't sound, that sounds very cold, <laughs> mm. but um, uh, these these folks are probably if I, I hope and pray that they can be rescued, I yeah. mean that's number one. But yeah. um, as far as a policy going forward for the for the army and for the uh, Knesset and everybody going forward, um, you know they're not, obviously not going to hold up the ground invasion, mm-hmm. and they're not going to allow these to be used as bartering tools. Like they're trying to use mm-hmm. children and the elderly as bartering tools to get water and electricity turned back on and flowing to Gaza, mm-hmm. and. And if, and if Israel, you know, acquiesces on that, I think that they're going to lose this conflict um, from the get-go. Mm. And so yeah. what the Biden administration did with kind of forcing this humanitarian pause to create corridors for them to get out of uh, northern Gaza is, um, I don't know how that works into this, but it obviously allows Hamas to dig in deeper, allows them to uh, booby-trap things and probably booby-trap the, the hostages themselves. So. Oof. I don't know. I, I think that if if it were us, I, mean, I would imagine we would already have 
Delta Force and other groups in there mm-hmm. already on the ground mm-hmm. or in the tunnels, wherever they are, um, trying to locate these folks yeah. and trying to exactly know exactly where they're being held. So, oh. And they may not even be in northern Gaza anymore. They may be moved to southern Gaza mm. um, because, you know, you have the, the Gaza that's at the surface level, and then you have this whole subterranean compo- component right. to Gaza, um, tunnels that connect not just from Gaza to Israel, but probably all of the Gaza itself has probably got networks underneath it that that they're able to move these hostages around. So the one video of the girl that they had, um, you know, I was listening to uh, an Intel guy that was talking about it. They're looking at, you know, how they're treating her. You know, they show them bandaging her, you know, like they're caring for her, even though they kidnapped her and injured her in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But you can hear in the background motors going. So it sounds like that there's some kind of a generator going to to pump in air. Wow. because they're underground. Yes. And so, um, you know, they're, they're, they're taking all of those clues and they're taking all of the knowledge that they have, uh, you know, th- that they've groomed and gained over the last, you know, 20, 30 years uh, for how that area operates. I'm sure they have that all blueprinted out trying to figure out exactly where these guys are and these hostages are. So uh, we pray for them. We pray for their safe yeah. delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like the United States policy used to be, you know, we don't we don't negotiate with terrorists, right? Because right. uh, you can't. Because the minute you do, you you allow that to be that's immediately what the next thing what the terrorists are going to begin using. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you if terrorists know that you're not going to negotiate for hostages, that takes away this major bargaining chip that they had that they were counting on um, to to you know survive at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your insights on that. Um, And like you said, the best we can do is pray. I I think about what if that was my family. And so I, you know, I put myself in that situation and it's got to be just traumatic. So we need to pray. Uh, Pete, we only have about five minutes left or six. Um, This article, Equivocation, you're talking about the Democrats who've been speaking out of both sides of their mouths regarding Middle East peace for years. They call it Palestine, which is anti-Semitic to me right out of the gate. But you're talking about that they're being obsessed with power and control, and they're sensing an opportunity here as we come into an election cycle, and now Biden wants $80 billion more for Ukraine, so that telethon keeps going, uh, and very little for Israel and very little for the border. I mean, they don't hide anything anymore. The, the politics, it's just, it's just uh, I don't even have a word for it. I think it's horrible, and their motives is there some way we can, how can we help people see through what's going on here? Because they want to divide and conquer Americans. Um, there's just a demonic agenda about everything that is going on. How, you know, how can we help uh, Americans be, be savvy in this election year and to really understand the, the demonic uh, aspect of all these things? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, the, the, the infamous quip that Rahm Emanuel said years ago, you know, Obama's former chief of staff, was that you never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> right. And and so uh, just like with COVID, um, this crisis was thrust upon them. I'm not saying they caused it. I'm just saying it was thrust upon them, and it took them a while to catch on, like, oh, we can we can use this, you know? Right. Uh, I think this is the same situation. Biden administration immediately jumped to Israel's aid um, because for years now, at least the last two or three years, but, you know, you can go all the way back to 2014, um, you know, uh, patriotic Americans, conservative Americans, libertarians, and others, um, just we don't want to get involved in another endless war. Right. And so uh, you see this divide happening within the conservative movement between Christian evangelicals who are pro-Israel 
and those that just see this that aren't pro-Israel, they they maybe not you know they're not anti-Semitic, but they're not like they don't they're not looking at this from a biblical lens, um, and they're simply looking at this as a geopolitical problem that that only goes back to 1948. Mm-hmm. They're not seeing the spiritual warfare that's going on. It's the same spirit that the the Third Reich had in trying to uh, annihilate a people group. Um, and so when this conflict broke out on that Saturday morning, and I first got started getting texts that morning about it, I just thought, okay, well, this is you know par for the course. Their missiles are going to go back and forth, and and it'll go on for a, a day or so, and then right. it'll end, you know. Right. But as it the day went on, it became more and more horrific. Um, I think people should be able to um, uh, watch the narrative, watch how this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Right now, the Biden administration is all all in, trying to be helpful and everything, but they're coming with some strings attached. But as soon as the Israelis get in there, they're going to start trying to negotiate some kind of a broker, some kind of a peace deal. And the pop and the popularity that the Israelis have had because of how horrific the attacks were is quickly going to fade and people are going to forget. Yeah. You know, you cannot forget what Hamas did. They're not even equating right. this to the Yom Kippur War in 73. Right. They're equating this to the Holocaust. Mm. That's how horrific this mm-hmm. was. And so uh, I just think that uh, people... People need to recognize that both parties have political agendas, um, that, that both are, are you know, vehemently in, invested mm-hmm. only in keeping their own power. Mm-hmm. So they're going to do whatever they can that's politically, um, uh, politically savvy enough to make sure that they stay in power and they keep their game going. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not just laying blame at the Democrats. I, I blame, blame at the establishment Republicans, mm-hmm. the, the D.C. Beltway insiders and those, um, you know, unelected bureaucrats that are that are uh, invested in just, you know, their own profit, their own gain. Mm-hmm. We've got to remind people that Genesis 12 is still in effect. Genesis 12, 3, that God told Israel God, uh, through Abraham said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Mm. And that has never been rescinded. That has never been yep. taken back. That is still in effect. Yeah. So we need to stand with Israel. We need to pray for them. We know that what's coming, according to Zachary. Nope, I think we lost him at the very last minute. He was just finishing that thought up about God's worldview when it comes to Israel. I will bless those that bless thee and curse those who curse thee. I think we just lost him. So I'm just going to wrap it up. We are so grateful that Pete had time today. Um, to, to parse all these things out, a lot of clear thinking. Um, I was thinking about the ideology in the Middle East. Um, we know what the ideology is. It's a spiritual battle, you know, hatred for Israel, hatred for God's people. And I looked up uh, Ukraine. What's the ideology of the Ukraine war? Okay, and this is what I got. Um, the most convoluted, meaningless jargon available. Here goes. The extended nature of the war in Ukraine stems from the long-term political and ideological developments that have led up to it and will continue to dominate it. That is nonsense. So keep your eyes on God's plan and God's program and prophecy and the things that are on God's front burner. Um, And we'll see what happens. I think we're going to possibly have World War III if we don't already. Thank you for joining me. Uh, We just appreciate you so much. Q Drive is next week. Uh, Thank you ahead of time for your support of the station. We are completely listener-supported. Once again, thank you, Pete Garcia, Rev310.net. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Have a great day on purpose. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Q90FM Radio on YouTube.